I was thinking that truly no human being ever would have entertained the idea that the empire of Rome would have fallen. And yet, historians and scholars now say, no, 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 that's as plain as day. All you would have to do is look at its bridges. Look at how Rome built its bridges. So I have some pictures of some bridges. Let's put one up. Look at this bridge. Look how stupid this bridge is, right? Look at like, how they built their bridge, <laughs> right? Bryce, this bridge is so stupid. Show me another bridge. Look at that bridge. That's a stupid bridge. Keep that one up just for a second. These humpback bridges were built over small streams throughout Europe. And for centuries, people and wagons safely crossed. But, 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 when pressure mounted and weight increased, Rome, like its bridges, would come falling down, falling down. So, what exterminated this empire? Well, naturally, I think all of us would say, those outside forces, that pressure that which added the weight to which we'd be radically wrong. Rome fell because it had insufficient inward foundation. It had no strong base. Any external forces only exposed the fragility which was already there. So collective church, culture we know and people and our emotions and our relationships are fragile. And without sufficient foundation, when such pressures come, there is guaranteed collapse. Which brings us to today. Today, we inspect our bridges and we assess to see what a faulty bridge consists of. But not just in light of our emotions or our, of our relationships or of culture. Hebrews chapter four and five, what Katie just read, wants us to audit our spiritual or our faith bridge of sorts. The bridge which is our hope is built on or our faith is on or our eternity. And we'll do this in a new section of Hebrews. So if you have those journals that we passed out, if you want some, like Lorenzo said, they're in the back. But what you can write down, what you can jot down is that the book of Hebrews is divided into three sections. The first section, which we just finished this last couple months, is that in the book of Hebrews, that describes who Jesus is. The second section, which we're starting today, and it goes to the end of chapter 11, that creamy center describes what Jesus did. And then for note's sake, the last section deals with our daily life in light of sections one and two. So what we're starting today is going to be longer, and it's thicker, and it's harder. It can kind of wade through, okay? So as we turn the page in this new emphasis of sorts, the author, who we call the stranger, if you've been with us, we call him that because he is unknown, and he is mysterious, and he is wild, and he is weird. Even, even did you guys see what Katie was reading? He literally says at one point, and it says on another place, he doesn't even reference it. He's just rambling things off. He's a little nuts, but he's easily one of the most brilliant writers in all of the Bible. So he is the stranger to us. And as I even described last week, this stranger, he's a bit of an arson of sorts. And Hebrews is this house fire, strongly exhorting his people with tough love to get moving, to jump, to leave, to go. That's what Hebrews is all about. Go, you need to go, you need to do this. But, 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 
all of that changes today. That house fire becomes something which where we warm ourselves with. Our text today is considered one of the most encouraging passages in all of the Bible. Old school theologian Martin Luther commented on this very text and said, after terrifying us, after terrifying us, the author, the stranger, now comforts us. After pouring wine into our wound, he now pours in oil. Both sound unsanitary, but I think we'll be getting what he's saying. <laughs> this is supremely encouraging because of three words. Because of three words. So I hope you're ready to be comforted today. Let's see if you can guess what the three words are of chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Anybody want to take a stab at those three words? Nobody? Nobody wants to take a chance? Great, great high priest. You made me rip my microphone out, Lily. I was that excited. Good job. <laughs> I was that excited. Great high priest. You feel comforted? You good to go? Should we just go home? No, because if we're honest, it's kind of like, meh. Oh, he's a great high priest. There's a cultural gap. In our contemporary culture, the reference, which we just kind of go over, is falling flat. We don't deal with priests. At least I don't. Maybe you deal with priests. So clearly when the writer of Hebrews identifies Jesus as high priest, that image resonated with first century readers profoundly, not so much with us. See, Collective Church, our ability to partake and participate in this thing called Christianity or following Jesus hinges upon our ability to see Jesus as a priest. Hinges upon to see Jesus as a priest. And for what it's worth, the stranger breaks down the priesthood probably as best, if not better, than anywhere else in the Bible. So what we need to do here is dust off the significance of priest. Okay, we're going to be talking about it a lot through the next couple of months. So if I don't cover something today, it'll get there. And we have to be mindful that this is an abstract history or theology. This is core faith stakes in the ground. So we have to do a little bit of a lesson here, history lesson. So everybody hop in your DeLoreans, right? All right, we're going to go and illustrate this. Do you get the reference, Brian? Everybody got to go over here, Megan? We're going to set the flux capacitor for centuries ago. Everybody still with the reference? Matt, you got it? Don't forget the plutonium. This half of the room got it. The Bill and Ted reference. Nobody got it. High priest, here we go. High priests were a very select group of individuals. Very, very select. In the first place, you had to be a member of a certain tribe, that being the tribe of Levi, much like the royal family. Let me read to you verse one of chapter five. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. But then... Even then, for not everybody in the tribe of Levi was qualified. You also then had to be descendant of Aaron, the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And then from that descendant, only one, 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 one of the descendants was chosen. Verse four of chapter five. 
And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So if you're tracking with me, this is like a lottery. One in millions and millions and millions could hold this exact office. Office. Now with a high priest in place, he was ready to fulfill his calling. The calling was truly practiced one day a year. So the high priest is kind of like Santa Claus. Like one day a year, he's super busy. And that special day, you can write it down in your little journ journs, it's called the Day of Atonement. Because human beings, then, what they knew is that they needed a temple, priests existed, rituals existed, sacrifices existed, because they knew innately there was a gap. Something needed to be atoned for. Something I believe our generation has sadly forgotten. Our society has abandoned the thought that there is a a yawning chasm between us and the divine, or that God is perfect and that we are flawed. I believe in modern times, in modern America, that has been flipped. God is flawed and we are perfect. Nonetheless, they knew this then, thus priests were in place to mediate the gap. Rituals were observed then by professional mediators and daysmen and arbiters and priests so that this remote deity might come near people even in fragmented form. Now, let's get into this again a little bit. This happened, like I said, on the Day of Atonement. This is considered the holiest day in the Jewish year, the special day. And the nation of Israel would shut down everything. And they fasted and they cleansed the sanctuary and they dealt with sin through sacrifice. And it was a, great, it was a, it was a, it was a day of great intensity. So intense that a very elite, get this, this very elite priest, a week beforehand had to be put in seclusion like a small room. He can't be around anybody. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally eat or touch anything unclean. So for a week, he is by himself. Clean food was brought to him. He would wash his body. He would prepare his heart. But then the night before, he stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. He was up all night. And this high priest was well aware of the gravitas that existed that was about to take place only in mere hours. Then when the day arrived, outside the temple, picture hundreds of thousands of people gathered there and they're weeping and they're fasting and they're denying themselves and they are soul searching so that they can come before their God and have their sins forgiven, removed and taken care of. So as this is happening, everybody's anticipating, everybody's excited, everybody's nervous, and they're all gathered like this, and they're freaking out. There's a tension in the air. The priest appears. He appears. You want to know what the first thing he does when he appears? He doesn't make a stupid joke about bridges. He doesn't do anything like that. You know what he does? He bathes in front of them. And he gets dressed in pure white linen in front of them. Then he went into the most sacred, dangerous, off-limit zone of the entire temple, what's called the Holy of Holies. For centuries, can you have to imagine this? For centuries, these people were told, if you even get near the mountain, you're going to die. And this single guy has to now go into this holy and holy of rooms. He has to walk up the mountain, basically. There's a lot of tension now, somebody's going to walk in. There's no doubt trembling. It's terrifying. It's sobering. It's serious. And as the priest went in, you know what he did? He made sacrifices first, first for himself. 
He had to do it for himself, for his own sins. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. He first had to be pure. Because of this, he obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as the people, just as he does for those of the people. Then he would come out again, he would bathe again, he would get dressed again, and then he'd go into the Holy of Holies and tone for the sins of all the people present. Now remember, this was all done, bathing, dressing behind a veil, nonetheless, behind a thin curtain. But what were they were doing? What was the people doing? You have to think, as they're waiting on the outside, is he going to come out? 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 Is he dead? Is he going to die? Did he die in there? He's dead. Oh my gosh, he's dead. No, there he is. No, that's not him. They're just freaking out, waiting on the outside. Like I said, it's nervous. They're biting their nails. They're excited. There's anxiety rushing through their veins. Why? They're not going in. What do they care? Well, it's because the high priest, and listen closely, was their representative to God, and he was also God's representative to the people. So they're cheering this priest on. Oh, there he is. <laughs> oh, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's bathing now. He's fine. They're cheering him on. They're thinking, have your act together. Be cool. I need you. I want you. Because without you, I cannot have a relationship with God. You represent me, priest. So much so this priest wore a breastplate over his heart. And on this breastplate were 12 beautiful stones. I have a picture just to give you guys a general idea of what this looked like. So this is with the outfit. I was actually at the Skirball Museum yesterday and I had a chance to see this, this actual outfit in person. It's quite amazing and probably extremely, extremely heavy. But I want you guys to notice the 12 stones of precious jewelry of emeralds and sapphires and diamonds. And each one was written on at the 12 names of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, excuse me. And once everything was taken place, sacrifice happened and ransom, purification, repentance for covenant, and every spoken and unspoken sin was atoned for. And I'll wrap it up with this, but essentially they'd bring in two male unblemished goats. And by lot, one was chosen to be a burnt offering and the other one was a literal scapegoat. So the other one, this is so awesome what they would do, all the sins of the people would be transferred onto one goat. All of your sins, all of your sins, especially Bryce's, just tons of sin on one goat. Just joking, Bryce. And you know what they'd do? They would lead that goat into the wilderness. Get that goat out of here. And they'd normally pay, they would normally pay a Gentile to do it, an un-Jewish person. Because no Jewish person in their right mind is going to walk this dangerous goat out who has everybody's sin on it. Mm-mm-mm. Pay a Gentile. He'll do it. So guess what would happen? The goat's thrown out into the wilderness. I don't know if they knew what happened to it. They didn't want to touch it. They want to look at it. And if people later would say, hey... You know, you, uh, Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> He's not in our church. <laughs> hey, you, Billy Bob. Hey, you remember when you did X, Y, and Z? And Billy Bob would be like, no, that goat is gone. You can't bring that up. That goat is out of here. You can't talk about that. The sin is gone. The sin has left the camp. And remember, the temple is a place where heavenly and earthly lines blur. The ground is a merging of heavenly and earthly. Like, they're in collision. So I know that's probably a lot to take in. So I'm going to share an extra biblical, extra biblical resource of a firsthand account of, of, a, of, a, of a man who has been there. Just allow yourself to listen and to feel this. This is what he wrote. It was an occasion of great amazement. 
to us when we saw the high priest engaged in his ministry and all the glorious vestments, including wearing the garments with the precious stones upon which he is vested. Then the priest's appearance makes one awestruck and dumbfounded. A man would think he had come out of his world into another. I emphatically assert that every man who comes near to the spectacle of what I have described will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. His very being transformed by the hollowed arrangement on every single detail. Simply, it is almost impossible to overestimate or to exaggerate their elevated position. The high priest held in their minds and their imaginations of the Jewish people, he's, he's fascinating. There's an aura around him. Uh, everything he touches turns, he's just an amazing being. Like how people, like how, probably how people look at like Michael Jackson. Like, oh my gosh. But then this. Imagine this fascination and this obsession with this high priest. And then you hear some random Joe say this in a sermon to you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. The son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The people would have been, what did he just say? Husbands would have been grabbing their wives' hands. What is happening? What is happening? Go get the kids, we're leaving. They would, have, they would have been slayed by the Jewish, by this Jewish words of what's happening. Astonished and amazed beyond words. Not only because it was so offensive and blasphemous, but just because he uses the name Jesus for the first time. You've been tracking in the book of Hebrews. This is the first time he uses his name and he connects it with great high priest. This is a lot. This book is about him being a priest. He says, Jesus is your great high priest. Man, he's great because rather than entering the Holy of Holies within the temple to be in God's presence, what does Jesus do? What does verse two tells us? He passes through heaven by the ascension to be in the very presence of God. No, he doesn't have to go in that little room. This, this guy went straight to heaven, the stranger says. But that's not all. There are two, two massive fundamental flaws with these marvelous high priests. As incredible as they were, there's two massive flaws which only inflamed the greatness aspect of Christ's priestly role. One such flaw is the high priest was himself weak, it says. He was a sinner. So there is a sense in which the high priest himself needed a priest. And the second flaw, perhaps the greatest one of all, is the insufficiency of his sacrifice, that being the blood of goats and bulls or lambs. And the stranger makes it quite clear throughout this entire transcribed sermon. Look what he says in Hebrews 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, Casey, what are you saying? What am I saying? I'm saying this, that both priests and their sacrifice are not enough. Their bridge, you could say, is Roman. It's weak. It's faulty. Now stay with me a moment on this whole bridge idea. Some of you here might geek out on this. Some of you may want to take a nap. But the Latin phrase for high priest or the word priest is the exact, exact, it's, it's got so much relevancy, get this. It can be comprised in two words. It means exactly this. It is bridge 
and maker. Priest can be broken down to two words, bridge and to make. So a high priest is therefore a bridge builder, bridge maker, but it's more important if we say it like this. Jesus Christ is the great bridge builder. Friends, I hope this is starting to come alive in your hearts as it has done in mine. You see, if you're here and you follow Jesus or you don't, but you get caught in the thick, like the thicket of religion, laws and rules and regulations, look at all those blood sacrifices and breastplates, whatever, the Old Testament. And we think, holy macaroni, look how many laws there are. Look what these priests had to do. Look at all the dead animals. No, 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 no. That's like starting or staring at like an engineering blueprint of a truss bridge and saying, gee whiz, this is sure going to be hard to build. The Old Testament engineering blueprints are not written primarily to tell the people all they needed to do, but to show them all that God would build for them. So it isn't like we look at the Old Testament, we look at all these laws, we look at all what these priests have done and go, my goodness, there's so much that has to be done. That's the wrong way to read it. We're supposed to look at this and go, look how much God is going to do. So the effect of today shouldn't be, oh, crap, Aroni, look at all I have to do. It should be, look what God has done. Never, ever, ever, I would just encourage for that to come alive, misunderstand or confuse the context of, his, of these original hearers. These Jewish believers, the stranger's audience, have stepped out from Judaism into Christianity, and they wanted to reverse that in order to escape persecution by their countrymen. So basically, it's this. In other words, the Jesus bridge wasn't cutting it. Is anyone here today thinking the same thing? It's probably a safe bet that this whole Jesus thing isn't working out. So maybe that's not clear enough if that doesn't that's not striking you. Let me say it more offensively. When we don't believe we are what we've been proclaimed to be, the original audience saying that they're going to be taken care of, that they're his beloved. When we don't believe that, what we're saying is, God, I know you find the priestly work of Christ enough. I don't. God, I know that's enough for you what Jesus has done. <laughs> that is not enough for me. To them, there was more to be done, more to be desired. They wanted the old ways, the old familiar bridges. They wanted control and familiarity. They wanted escape. They wanted comfort. They wanted, they wanted this, this mode. They wanted a, a safe bet. And that's precisely why the stranger walks these people, you and I, from our insufficient bridges to this one. You see, I wonder, and I'd be curious if you agree with me. I believe one of the reasons that many churches are Christians get so fixated on rules or old ways like this original audience is because when we loosen our grip on who Jesus is and who we are because of him, then the old ways or the rules or the regulations is all that we're left with. So anytime we find ourselves slipping back into old ways or religion or I want rules or I want it this way or I want to escape, it's because we have forgotten who we are in Jesus. Why do we think he has told us for the first four chapters who Jesus was and who we are in light of it? Author Stuart Briscoe has said before, if we taught people who they are in Christ, we probably wouldn't have to spend as much time telling them what to do. 
See, Christians, in times when external, external, external forces are attacking our Jesus bridges, I think the best thing we can do is ask ourselves, moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, did Christ the high priest handle it? To be able to slow down in those moments, we just feel like we're drowning and just be able to go, is Christ taking care of this? Can I trust that? Who am I in light of that handling? Because if that's true, that means there's no better bridges in our life. There's no other improved plans of God. There's nothing more that you or I can do. There's no other bridge. Now, if you're like me, some of you go, yes, amen. I so badly want that assurance. But then it's followed up with a dot, dot, dot. But how? How? Well, you're in luck. The stranger shows us. He doesn't show us not only the bridge that was made or how, who designed it, but he also shows us how to walk it, how to cross it. Look at verse 15 of chapter four. This is so powerful, collective church. Holy smokes. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just sit with that for a moment. It's so rich. Ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle would say that basically the only thing man could do with the gods is either appease or anger. That's it. You're going to appease God, you're going to anger God. Never could man relate to God or more particularly relate as friends. That, this verse, 415, burns that ideology to the ground. Aristotle proclaimed that a relationship as friends requires both parties to have something in common, equals almost, meaning they must be alike. If we hear that, the stranger, if the stranger was arguing with Aristotle, you know what he would have said? Exactly! Thank you, Aristotle, exactly! Welcome to Jesus, who bridges that chasm so that you can know God as friend. I love John 15, 15. Holy smokes, this verse is so great. No longer do I call you servants, Jesus says, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Show me another faith system which expresses this same truth. The gospel that has been laid on the table, the red flashing button that Hebrews is pounding, is what all other philosophers and other religious teachers of the world find utterly outrageous. There's probably some in here in this room who do. That's, right, that's ridiculous. All because, well, and how does Hebrews 2.17 put it? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and what? Faithful high priest in the service of God to, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Not only is he saying he is a friend, you can know him, you can relate with him, you have something in common with him, the stranger's saying, he also explains that you can have great intimacy in how. 
It is because God became lifeless, equally mortal, and subjecting himself to suffering and death. He did this so that we realize it's not upon our own merit. And this is what makes the reality of the high priest so bonkers. Track with me, because this is so beautiful. You see, you're only a priest. You're only a high priest if, 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 if you have something to offer. A priest cannot just walk into the Holy of Holies empty-handed. Hi, God. No, no, we can't do that. You're only a priest if you have something to offer. That's different with Jesus. Jesus did not walk in with a goat. You see, Jesus is both the priest, but he is also the scapegoat. He is both the victim as well as he is the priest. He is both the cut open as well as the butcher. He is both the bridge and the bridge builder. Jesus went before our God wearing our names like stones on his breast and blood was shed. Man, alive. But here's the best part. When Jesus was done, you know what he didn't do? Well, I guess I better go get another go. Boy, my back is aching. He didn't do that. Boy, I'm tired. I should probably do some more sacrifices. No, 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 no. Hebrews 10, 12 says this. But when Christ had been offered for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Sitting down means something in Scripture. Not to rest. Jesus is like, oh, gosh. Not to rest. To reign. Jesus was done. He was done. This means it is finished. Making every temple, every ritual, every blood sacrifice from that moment on as relevant as a blockbuster video, as relevant as the yellow pages, as relevant as phone booths. All of this is what the stranger is getting to when he says in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, when Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, he's talking about Jesus, to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, that means being made complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek stuff, if you guys are curious about that, that's in the coming weeks. It's very daunting. It's very wild. Pastor Isaac's going to have a great time teaching it. That's going to be for him. (laughs) But I want us to actually get right here that this is very awkward. This This is a bit awkward, these verses. It should be. We should have went, mm, no. Why? Because the great high priest thing only works if he's sinless, if he's perfect. And what are we seeing here? So that he's made perfect? So that he's learned obedience? I guess the flip side of that is, guess what? Jesus was disobedient. Jesus was imperfect. Christ had to enter a personal and experiential understanding of what obedience was and is. Because up to that point, it was untested. It had to be proven. Christ had to prove it. Thus proving himself obedient through suffering, being made perfect. Now we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to have this understanding ultimately, that fact that Jesus suffered, because it's the only way we're going to look at verse 415 and understand any of it. Verse 415, remember, sympathize with our weaknesses. The suffering part only makes sense in light of this, and this only makes sense in light of the suffering part. Sympathize with our weakness, and yet without sin. Again, this should bother us. 
That means Jesus never sinned. Jesus never felt that. Jesus never went to that part. Jesus was never in that pain. How could he actually sympathize? Come on, right? How does this work? How does Jesus actually feel the full temptation and not be able to fully sympathize us because he never actually sinned? He never actually felt like that. Well, this is the exact objection that author C.S. Lewis heard and he wrote a beautiful response to. So if you have an issue with it, you can email C.S. Lewis. But here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. This is Lewis's response. He's much like the stranger. That's a silly idea. That's what he says. That's a silly idea. It's current that good people do not know what temptation means. So if we think that, it's because we don't know what temptation means. If my objection was, how could he really know? We just don't get it. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is, Lewis says. A man who gives in no, uh, to temp, excuse me, let me try that again. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life always by giving in. Christ, because he is, was the only man who never yeah, never, never, never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So verse 15, the one we just read, the one Lewis is ultimately even addressing, again, I want us to be irked by this. This author of Hebrews is trying to cattle prod you. He's trying to upset you. He's trying to churn things up. Because this verse, and hear me so closely, tells us something about ourselves, an elusive reality that can be hard to see and difficult to admit. We roll over it pretty quickly, but do you see what he's saying? The stranger just said, you're weak. I'm weak. The stranger assumes our weakness, that jerk, but he assumes our weakness that our bridges are going to collapse, that our bridges won't make it to God. But since the stranger assumes this, the question is not whether it's true. The question is, are you aware of it? Am I aware of it? Am I aware of my weaknesses? Because if we're honest, isn't weakness one of the greatest identities we're afraid of the most? Only the strong survive, right? Only the strong survive. Weakness precedes our failures and our faults. The word here actually translated as just a general lack in physical, emotional, mental ability. It's the definition of helpless. You are helpless, he says. I am helpless. Weakness is a realization that we're unable. We're Roman bridges. What does everybody ask you in a job interview? Tell me your strengths and your weaknesses, right? By the way, if you guys want to know a great response to that, I always said, my weaknesses is I have too many strengths. And I got the job every time. Every time. Little tip from Uncle Casey. So if you guys ever need to do that. I'll also just say, if none of this makes sense to you, or everything that has been shared up here has been ancient gibberish, that is because we don't have a real enough, because you don't have a real enough and aware enough reality of your, of our weakness, our sin, our offense, our vandalization, or our need for somebody to fix beyond what we can repair. 
I can look at my car engine when it's broken down going, I need somebody else to fix this. I need a mediator. I think the potential from stopping us from receiving comfort in these verses, like oil being poured out into a wound, is to not confess and own our weaknesses. To own that we forget meeting times, wreck our cars, struggle with lust, hurt others in this room, have short tempers with our kids, get angry with God, hit our alarm clocks too much, trip and fall. You ever trip and fall as an adult? It's humbling. Very humbling. Simply, weakness represents those places in our life where we're reminded we're not omnipresent. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipotent. We're not omni. I can do anything better than you can do. Our limitations, our weaknesses then, well, actually, they seem more like a gift. So rather than being condemned by our limits or our weaknesses, the stranger says, what? You feel condemnation over your weakness? No, no, that is the very thing which connects you to your high priest. That distances you from him. Now with that, we're going to end with this. It's a weakness that connects us to Christ, not condemns it. Can that be said of our relationships here, collective church? It's weaknesses that actually maybe even bring us together. See, it's mind-blowing that so many expect patience from others when they are weak. But we don't transfer that same allowance when others are weak. Collective church, do you know why? And really let this hit us. Do you know why we have no set-apart priests today? Why we're not appointing priests in the church? You see, in the Old Testament, there were two classes of people in the Jewish nation. There's the bloodline priest, the ones we've been discussing all day, and the other 95% of people who are not priests, just ordinary people. Tragically, tragically, in church history and in many churches today, that divide still holds up. The clergy do all of the ministry and the rest watch it being done. This is unbiblical. Watch this. This is so crazy. Think of everything we just talked about with priests. Then watch these words in the New Testament from 1 Peter 2.9. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you see, there's no point in appointing priests because Christians, you all here, are priests. Whether you like it or not, you are priests, and so am I. We followers of Jesus are a royal priesthood to one another. We represent God to the world and more personally to who's around us. Now imagine, get this, everything we just talked about, hundreds of these people outside the temple. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now imagine how devastating it would have been on the Day of Atonement if the priest did not come, if the priest did not show up, if the priest did not care enough. Imagine if the priest the week before was just eating old popcorn and not bathing or purifying his heart and not caring. Imagine if the priest was not monitoring, monitoring, monitoring his spiritual condition. 
Could that same devastation exist today if priests here did not care, did not show up, did not monitor their spiritual condition? If priests here to one another were not loving and forgiving and discipling and encouraging and committing to one another? We are a royal priesthood. We will never fully know the priesthood of Christ until we give and receive as bridge builders to one another. This ideal will only stay in the periphery until we start operating as priests to one another. And one of the best ways we can do that on Sundays, Sundays especially, we have an opportunity, is through prayer. We offer prayer every single week. And there's people on that wall during our response time, and there's people on that wall during our response time that wear yellow lanyards. They are literally operating in the most functional way that we can see as priests and mediating between people. Intercessory prayer. If you have anything, I encourage you to go to those priests today and share your weakness and say, I need, I need intercession. I need mediation. And the stranger ends with this today for us. And the stranger says, and he slips in one crucial exhortation. We haven't had an exhortation this entire time. He slips in one in closing. This is what he says. Let us then, with confidence, here it is, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Present tense, exhorting, meaning to continually draw near. All who are weak, you have been giving access to the Holy of Holies. How incredible is that? That same fear, they're freaking out, don't touch the mountain. The stranger's like, run in, run. Bulldoze in straight into the Holy of Holies. Go. Go in through worship, prayer, song, reflection, and find help in your time of need. And in communion church, up here in my right and my left, Christians, this is for you. It's here in the front. These are the symbols of that representative sacrifice. Take them, pray, do work, seek repentance, speak praise, and worship as they did in the days when the high priest accomplished what needed to be accomplished on their behalf. And then I think I'll end with this quote because I hope this will lead us into our time of worship. Oh, I love this. I hope our worship, I hope our understanding of high priest, I hope our understanding that Jesus is both the, the scapegoat and the priest emphatically asserts that every person who comes near to the spectacle will experience astonishment and amazement beyond words. Let's pray.